You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Somewhat picking up where I was this morning, you know, people focus on often the wrong things in business. So one is growth at any expense. Let's just get, we need more new customers, more new customers, more new customers, more new patients, more new patients, more new clients, more new clients. And all their energy and investment is chasing that rabbit rather than a more sophisticated approach to where is the money in the business, where is the leverage, and so forth. So there's ways that people think about uh, business in general and money in it that we can talk about, I think, in this session um, that can get you more money out of the business that you have. So I'm working on this book right now um, for Forbes Books, uh, for Adam, um, which I started a couple months ago, and the manuscript was supposed to be delivered in March, and I don't usually miss deadlines, but this is sort of, this transition has sort of messed up my life. So, uh, so um, the Almost Alchemy book is going to be late to the publisher, and it's his fault, not mine. So, you know, I don't really feel that bad about it. But, but, but I've been working on this for about a year. And so alchemy, as you know, is the medieval times idea that you could turn base metals into gold and that there were magicians that were able to do this, which to the best of my knowledge is nonsense. Um, yeah, Bitcoin. Um, uh-huh. Um, what was it yesterday? 7,000, I think, something like that. Um, there's actually a mortgage company in Ohio. They're national, I think, actually, Quicken Loans. And they're running a radio commercial telling people to refi their houses in order to buy that stuff. And um, I hope they really like orange coveralls. Um, Because that's where they're headed. But anyway, so if if real alchemy can occur, though, with a business. So I don't think you can turn base metals into gold, but I think you can turn ordinary flow of activity in ordinary businesses into a lot more money. So a business is really a bucket into which we pour time, energy, effort, money, marketing dollars, leads, prospects, customers, and we turn that soup into money. So most business owners get good at pouring stuff into the bucket. They also get bad at pouring stuff into the bucket in the sense that if they're not hitting their income goals, they try and do more of what they're doing and do it faster. So instead of working 40 hours, they work 50, then they work 60, then they work 70. Instead of five patients a day, they're seeing 10, they're seeing 15, and so forth. But few really focus on what happens inside the bucket 
once they pour stuff in there. So in my consulting life, almost everybody comes to me for help with pouring in the bucket. Mostly they come and they want better ads. And nine out of ten times, that's not really their highest and best need. And it's certainly not their highest and best opportunity. So I go through this cycle where almost everybody who comes to have a conversation with me is really disappointed by about 10 o'clock in the morning. Because I'm not going where they intended to go. By about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the smart ones are feeling better and I'm forgiven. But in the meantime, there's some rocky places. Because the most famous one of which, um, uh, Bill, Bill Glazer, Bill and I were just talking in the back. Uh, Bill and I actually worked on this consulting project together. And they originally came to me to get better ads. And you remember this morning I talked to you about the number one lever for business growth is truth, right? Is facts, is information. Not what people think is happening, not what they believe is happening, not what, but what are the facts? So they came essentially better ads. We need more prospects, we need more lead flow, we need more customers. And this is a very big project, and it's a very big company, which I don't usually like, but there was $2 million on the table for us. And not too far into this, I sat with the CEO and said, let me give you a million back, and let's fix the bucket into which you want to pour more leads and more customers. Because the first thing we did is we had um, um, phones mystery shopped. So we had transcripts of inbound calls into their locations, which were all horrible, awful, and mind-bending in the sense that no two phones are being answered alike. It's all bad, but it's diverse. Um, um, then, worse, we have what they claimed were their five best salespeople in the country recorded, not role-played, doing real sales presentations and knowing they were being recorded got it transcribed, and looked at it. And beyond, I mean, I expected it to be bad, but I had no expectation of it being this bad. I mean, it was horrible. And so the conversation was, look, let's not just totally focus on pouring more into the bucket. Let's fix what's going on in the bucket, and let me just give you some money back to go do that with. Enormous resistance. That's not what they came for. Plus, that's work. Um, so that tends to rule it out with a lot of folks. And we, we'll, if we just shove enough leads in there, everything will be fine. By the way, most big companies, this is what happens. I had Weight Watchers at one time as a client. And the business was at that time still very dependent on meetings. Um, 
So the inbound call to Weight Watchers, that year they handled 1.2 million inbound calls. And the inbound calls are all the same. Mary's on the phone and Mary says, and they say, uh, great Mary, you call Weight Watchers, you want to lose some weight? How much weight you want to lose? And Mary names a number or she names a number of dress sizes. And when do you want to lose a buy? And she says a date, a time, a month. Why? Well, my class reunion, I'm getting married, my divorce is going to be final. My, you know, she's got a reason. And then they would say, great, there's three meetings in your town this week. There's one Tuesday night in the church basement, and there's one on Thursday over here. And which one would you like to go to? And Mary would tell them which one, and they would verify the address and everything. And that's the call. Okay, I've just given you the whole process. You may be leaping to where I got. I said, so when Mary doesn't show up at the meeting, which I presume more don't than do, what happens? The answer to that question is nothing. Mm -hmm. They're in our database. They get, when we do a mailing campaign, they get it. But no, no, I mean what specifically happens. Like she was supposed to be there Tuesday night and wasn't. What happens to her on Wednesday? Nothing. Why not? Surely, I'm not a tech guy, but I believe you can screw an antenna on a laptop and the list can be sent to the person in the church basement to check off who's there and who isn't. And it can be sent back uh, through the magic antenna. And then we can do something with the ones who weren't there that night. Call them, email them, dispatch a pigeon, at least pray over them. We could at least do that. Here is the answer from the CEO of this company. You're here because we have an ad budget. We don't have a laptop budget. So don't mention it again. Okay. Uh, Now, I'm telling you, this this is how dumb it is out there. And your first mission is not to be this dumb, right? Because it could be a huge advantage, particularly if you're up against big companies, not to be stupid, right? And, and I'm going to tell you the key way not to be stupid. So they come for better ads, but really in nine out of 10 cases, it's not their highest and best need or their highest and best opportunity. Now, does this stupid happen at the small business level? Yes, it does. So financial advisors, and I know there's a bunch of you in the room, the financial advisor aiming at retirement money, most of them, here's their business model. A bunch of advertising that gets old people into a room, usually somebody's at the door waving fried chicken or a free steak at them or something, and, and they come in the door, 
And see, people are so funny. Remember we talked about this morning building the house you don't like to live in? So financial advisors, here's their number one complaint. Their complaint is about those people. They call them plate lickers. I'm serious. That's what they call them. All these damn plate lickers who come to my free workshops. And I'm going, it might have something to do with you putting a steak on a plate. Do you think? If there's no plate, they can't lick it. And then maybe people will come to your workshops for the right reason. Oh, there'll be 20 less people there. We can't have that. So they get them in a room. They let them lick the plate. They do their dog and pony show. And then they book them for appointments. This is their business model. So we had, he showed you a trust-based marketing book cover, Matt Segula and I. So we had, I don't know, 65, 66 financial advisors in this coaching program. They had to be making a half a million bucks to be in the room. So they're not dumb people. It, they just do dumb stuff. So I say, how many, when you do a meeting, after they're all done licking the plate, and you've done your dog and pony show, how many schedule appointments? So first of all, a bunch of them don't even know. I, so you, they respond with, I think. No, 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 I don't want to know what you think. I want to know what you know. So they'll admit, I don't know. It's about X percentage. Most of them claiming 60%, 70%, all of them. By everybody. I get them all. You go pull their records, they're getting 20%, 25% to book appointments. I say, what do you do with the ones who don't book appointments? The answer is Weight Watchers answer. So there's actually three answers from financial advisors. One, we don't do anything. They sheepishly admit we don't do nothing. Another answer is we don't do anything because car dealer talk now from this morning. There ain't no beatbacks. They just saw my best dog and pony show. If they don't book an appointment from that, they're worthless and there's no point in doing anything. That's the second answer, which all the empirical evidence is to the opposite of that. Third is, this is the really good one. We have Shirley call them if she has time. The, now, I'm serious. This is an answer from somebody making a half a million dollars a year running a financial advisory practice. I wouldn't let the guy manage a dollar of my money or run my lemonade stand based on this answer. I'm going, you do know Shirley does not want to call anybody. So Shirley is never going to have time. You know, her third life, maybe, but not now. But this is their answer. So think about how dumb this is. And I really want you to think about how dumb this is. So financial inefficiency is really damaging to businesses. And before you get better ads, you want to be financially efficient with the money you spend on whatever media you spend it on to get leads. So the definition of financial inefficiency is non or poor monetization of every asset and every expense. So first of all, think people, right? So deep in these conversations, 
Adam says, I got, I think it was 90 employees. He's now got 101. Um, but it was 90. And I know what his revenue is. So I quickly divide the revenue by 90. And now I know what production is occurring per person. Now, of course, you and I know it ain't democratized. So if you really now we're going to go help somebody, you're going to actually go find the production of each person. So every expense should be monetized. Every problem should be monetized. Every asset has to be monetized. When you spend your money, time, energy, and effort on marketing, you don't pay just for the customers you get. You pay for the customers you don't get. So if you spend $10,000 on an ad to drive people into your store, you have got to know how many people came in the store, not just how many people came in and bought something. You paid for every one of them. Take the 10 grand, divide it by the number of people who came in the store. First problem, guy says, I don't know how many people came in the store. Well, you've got to know. Cheap money, station somebody there to count them. If you can't do it any other, you've got to know. So I'll take you through a couple examples that are instructive. Years back, good friend of mine, marketing consultant guy like me in the auto parts business, auto parts store, stores. And <coughs> here's what phone calls sound like at an auto parts store on a Saturday. Do you guys have a muffler for a 56 Plymouth? Guy says, I don't know, I'll check. Puts customer on hold or in a really well-run store, pulls it up on the computer and can answer them real quick. Yep, we got one. No, we don't. Nine out of ten times not. No, we don't, but we can get one here by... That's like one out of ten times. Customer's next question is, how much is it? Guy answers the question. Never answers with... There's three kinds of mufflers for 56 Plymouths. There's one made to the original specifications of perfect. There's a, another one that's universal. It's not as good, but it's like, there's none of that. There's just, it's 48 bucks. Customer says, great. This is the end of almost all these phone calls. Some, the guy shows up to get the muffler. He doesn't show up to get the muffler. Nobody really remembers there was a guy supposed to come in to get a muffler. Nobody, but you paid for that call. And that's what you got to get. Take your total overhead, your total advertising expense, your rent to the shopping center, the snowplow you got to pay in the winter. You add it all up and you divide it by the number of calls you got, and you know what you paid for each and every call. So some business owners at least know their cost per sale, but they do not know what they paid for all the non-sales. You dramatically impact that, as Jerry always taught, 
if you change the answering of the call this way. Hi, do you guys have a muffler for a 56 Plymouth? I don't know. I'll be checking while we talk for just a minute. And while I'm doing that, I get fired if I don't put you on our opt-in email list for coupons and bulletins and special offers. And immediately, you're going to get emailed a coupon for $20 um, if you do come in to get the muffler. And, oh, good news, we got one. May I have your name? May I have your email address? Gee, can I get your real address so we can send you our monthly? You change the call. What happens? You build a list. What happens if you have a list? If the guy doesn't come in for the muffler, ideally, at the end of the day, somebody calls him. Hey, I held a muffler for you. Where are you? But if you're not going to do that, at least we got him to market to. And what do we know about him? He's got a 56 plummet that he works on, and crap breaks on it, and he needs stuff. You immediately change the financial efficiency of the whole business if you just change the way that phone is answered, okay? so that you get customers, but you also get data. So here's a side mini lecture. Then I have another example for you. Here's how wealth in America works. The first kind of wealth in America was land. Land owners got the wealth. It allowed you to control crops, food production, water rights in the frontier west. In the south, you got to own slaves. All the wealth was landowner. It gradually changed to industry owner. So the wealth moved from owning land to owning production, factories. This is the Napoleon Hill era of thinking grow rich. This is Andrew Carnegie, steel production. John Rockefeller, oil production. Right. Henry Ford, assembly line, cars. This is where the wealth went, to, indu to industry. Then it went to transportation, because now we were making a bunch of stuff, but you had to move it. So like railroads. Everybody that owned railroads got rich. And still to this day, owning railroads isn't that bad of a deal, because the government won't let you build a competing railroad track next to an existing railroad track. That's why Buffett owns railroads. And then the money moved to the second industrial revolution, tech. So now wealth was in technology. Where is wealth now? Data. It's exactly right. right? All the rest of it is incidental. First of all, you don't necessarily need a lot of land to own a lot of data. Again, I don't know much about tech, but I do know one of them little devices you've got that you can't turn off for five minutes um, um, ha can, can own a lot of data. I took over a company in 19... 
79, we still had mainframe computers, a room full of them. Had to be refrigerated so they didn't overheat, and people who knew how to operate them, and all that computing power is now what? You know, a thing the size of your thumb, right? So you don't need a lot of land. You don't need railroads to transport it, right? You don't need any of that. And all the wealth is in data. All the recent Facebook stuff, his testimony to Congress, the message is abundantly clear. The wealth is in the data. So if you have a business through which data flows and through which uncaptured data passes, you are failing to monetize the part of your business that is most directly relevant to wealth. When a small business gets killed by a big business, small brick and mortars being theoretically destroyed by Amazon, only partially being really destroyed by Amazon, what's the big difference between the small brick and mortar retailer, so Bed Bath & Beyond even is a chain, and they're like one step away from death, and think about the small retailer in the same housewares category on Main Street in your town, what's the difference between them and Amazon? Data monetization. Their problem is not really that Amazon can sell at cheaper prices. Their problem is not really that Amazon has bigger selection. These things are competitively conquerable. The problem is Amazon knows how to monetize data, and the guy with the three hardware stores in the three small towns near you has very little data, has very little respect for it, and will not monetize it. That's really the issue. Another example. So do people capture data? So Jerry taught the auto parts stores, you got to capture data. You got to monetize your leads, not just your customers. Uh, we had in um, a Glazer Kennedy coaching group, we had a DUI attorney from Las Vegas. Same situation. Understand this situation's everywhere. Ton of advertising, ton of phone calls from frightened people who just got a DUI. What does a call sound like? Sounds just like the auto parts call. Hi, I just got a DUI. Can I get in to see the lawyer this week? Yes. How much does it cost to do my DUI case? Person on the phone answers. Person books an appointment, doesn't book an appointment, it's over. Well, no. How about we ask for information first so we can follow up on the ones who don't book an appointment and we can market to them? Secular religion, not facts. Everybody who calls, if they, if they don't get to an attorney right away, they just go to the next lawyer and the next lawyer and the next lawyer. And they're all shopping for the cheapest price, so we have to go low price. Second piece of secular religion. 
They're all embarrassed. They don't want to give their information. They're not going to give us their name, their phone number, their address. They won't do it. So now we pay his nitwits who answer the phone $5 for every complete record. All of a sudden, the cloud of embarrassment by drunk drivers above Las Vegas disappears into the hinterlands, and everybody who's calling is perfectly willing to name, address, phone number, blood type, do you drive a truck, do you drive a car, do you have a commercial license, do you have a residential license, full records. All of a sudden, the situation changed for $5. You know how valuable that data is? What's the difference between a cab driver, a truck driver, and a regular driver? Regular driver just loses the ability, if they lose their license, to go to the casino and the strip club and their mothers to do their laundry on Sunday. The guy who drives a truck for a living or drives a cab for a living, he, uses, he loses his living. Can we spend five times as much money to market to him as the other one? Can we FedEx him? Can we just mail the other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Has it changed? So I gave you old examples. So two doors down from the mail center I use in the little strip center is a Red Wing shoe store, mostly work shoes, steel-toed shoes, work boots, heavy socks, etc. How this survives is beyond me, but I assume his wife's got a really good job. That's my answer. Right? But he's there, and he's in there, and I like to help local. So at Christmas time, I go in to get gift cards for the folks that work for us at the racetrack. I come, I buy, I leave, no capture. No name, no address, no phone, no nothing. This happens now more and more and more because the credit card thing has gotten, you could be 50 feet away and just wave it. And the machine runs the card, there's no nothing, right? Recently, Carla manages to break her ankle in 512 places. Um, um, she's got... 23 screws, three metal plates, no weight bearing for another four years and two months. And <laughs> the whole thing is not pretty, you know. I, said, I know the vows just like everybody else, but, <laughs> but it so happens I have money. So guess what you're getting? A care person from dawn until bed. <laughs> well, now you got to find one, right? You see all them TV ads for visiting angels? Boom. I'm on the phone to visiting angels. I want to buy some visiting angels. <laughs> eh? That's what I want. And I often do this. My opening volley is, and... Money is no object. Would you love to be called by somebody who in the first three sentences of the conversation says money is no object? You'd be amazed how many people never hear it. 
Okay. Bill will appreciate. I can't tell you, five or six times I've gone into clothing stores when I've been on the road and needed something, and my opening thing is, and money is no object, and they lead me back to the stuff that's on sale. And I mean, I shave. I mean, I, you know, I'm thinking, what is wrong with you, right? So visiting angels cannot answer how soon can we get a person to me. I don't know. Charlie is in Columbus today at a meeting. I'll have to text Charlie and wait till Charlie gets back to me, and then I can call you back. I'm like, mm. you know. And I have this theory. If they can't take money, imagine what this is going to be like after you give them money, right? But still, I don't want to go find another one, but, you know, no ability to answer questions, but we have somebody on the phone. Why? You'd be better off with voicemail, right? Secondly, no capture. No name, got a phone number. No address. How about FedEx, shock and awe package? How about, you know, you don't contract with them forever. You buy them by the week. I might be unhappy with whoever I got by next week, and now I get your great shock and awe package and your wonderful testimonials and your DVD of happy visiting angels arriving, and I might even switch. No, no contact captured. None. Ever. Person after person, business after business. So you pay for every phone call, every walk-in, every walk-by, any, every web visit. People actually let them go through websites without any capture. Oh, they won't. Half of them will bail out if we don't let them see everything without. So? Don't you want somebody interested enough to want further engagement? Oh, we can't ask for a hard address. Oh my God, they'll all bail out. Then they're crappy. Or your message is crappy. They won't all bail out if your message is not crappy and is relevant. They'll want engagement. And you're paying for every click. So you've got to monetize every single one. So here's how good Disney is at this. And again, you're here. Hopefully you came early or you're leaving late and you're running over there because there's a seminar at every step, right? We used to say, Adam referred to it, there was a seminar in every issue of the newsletter. At Disney, there's a seminar in every step if you pay attention. So Disney, as you know, has the pin trading deal. And so there's all these collector pins and there's lanyards around a kid's neck. And I've talked about pin trading before. But one of the problems with the pins is, you know, they're made cheaply in China by slave labor children and with cheap materials. And the, well, when they opened over there, the kids finally, when Disney opened in Tokyo and in China, 
the, the kids in the labor camps finally got to see what this was all about because there was a park. So the, the, so the backs fall off the pins. They're little rubber things. And after you've put it on and off four or five times, the hole gets bigger and the thing falls off the back. Therefore, the pin falls off the front. Kid loses pin. Kid is screaming. Dad's mad. I'm never buying pins again, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a business problem, right? So Disney, however, does not really believe in solving business problems. They believe in monetizing business problems. Look, you laugh, but this is important. See, this is mindset stuff. This is how you think about things. It's the guts of the peak performers program is how you think about things. So Disney does not think about problems as things to solve. <coughs> they think about problems as things to monetize. This is not new. Okay? This, is, this is the thinking that gives you rain slickers under the counter in every store. So when it pours rain in the middle of the day in Florida, which it does every day but two, every year, and everybody is getting drenched, okay? You have these cheap made in China that will fall apart after two wearings, but they're 40 bucks. Um, uh, rain slickers, they're in every store, everybody pulls them out right away, all right? We were here with a, with a group of mine, I don't know, two, three years ago now, in like March, and it was all of a sudden 20 below. I mean, it was like unbelievable. And we're going to all eat outdoors and watch the fireworks. And all so I'm over to the park the day before, and I'm thinking, oh, this is not good, right? We're all going to freeze, and everybody's going to be unhappy. And instead of rain slickers, what do they got? Stocking caps and mittens, I swear to God, in Florida, ready to deploy. <laughs> the minute this problem occurs... The rain parade was invented while Walt was still alive. Oh, we have a problem. It pours rain. People are unhappy. What will we do? Well, we'll create a parade. Everybody will come out and dance in the parade, and they're going to want to be out to see the parade, so they all got to buy a rain slicker. Perfect. We'll sell a shitload of rain slickers. <laughs> they got Seminole Indians doing the rain dance back behind the scenes to make it rain every day. So they got this pin problem, right? Which anybody of normal thinking would say, well, we got to solve this problem. We got to get better pins. We got to get better backs. No, 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 no. Not at Disney. Now, the way they deal with this problem is they put four extra pin backs in a package and sell it right next to the pins. They literally say the pins and the backs on them are so crappy that they're going to fall off. So you better buy a package of pins because the minute your kid loses the pin, so have pins. Backs, try it in the morning. If it's too loose, open up your package of spare pin, put another bag on it. Okay? Now you would think this acknowledgement that we make a product that goes bad uh, universally, guaranteed, at some point the backs are falling off. 
right? This would be a, no, it's not a problem. They go, oh, great, the backs fall off. Wonderful. We can make another $100 million, right? We'll sell them pinbacks. This is the way to think about everything financial about your business, is how do we monetize everything? So we haven't done it at GKIC since Bill um, was with us. But um, so as some of you know, I like a really cold room, Um, like really cold. So for years, we sold no BS uh, fleece jackets. One year, I think we had blankets. Well, that's the Disney pin back thinking, right? So here's the holes of the bucket, most of them. One is no capture of contact information. Goes on, I'm telling you, everywhere. No follow-up on leads. All these businesses have secular religions about why the leads are no good if they didn't buy the first time, if they didn't buy by the third notice, if they didn't buy that month. It's all wrong. No follow-up on referrals. It's amazing to me. Businesses get referrals, and they don't do anything with them. Shirley calls them if she has time. I'm going to have time. They dump them in the general database. When they do convert one, they don't do anything with the person who gave them the referral. And really, you should do something big. Because if Mary gives you a referral, here's what Mary just demonstrated. She will. She's capable of doing it. She probably has more than one friend. If you make a big deal out of it, you get another one, right? No instant follow-up with new customers. Okay, this is big. So when you get a new customer, you haven't done anything. You've started a process of conversion to a customer who will stay with you, from whom you will get frequency, which we talked about this morning. You will get constancy this morning. And a big part of that is how you welcome the new customer to the family. And thank you as they, you know, like the cashier at Target says thank you. Because there's a sticker on the cash register that says you got to say thank you or you get fired, and that's exactly what it sounds like. I don't mean that. I mean like a big deal, right? What nobody else does. So I'm amazed every time I go for the first time to some high-end restaurant where the ticket give or take, you're going to drop 100 bucks. Most of the time, there's no data capture. There's a half-assed attempt at some of them. Would you fill out this card for our birthday club? Nobody really. They don't even go to, 
I'm supposed to get these filled out for, to put you in the birthday club. What's your address? They don't even get that far. It's like, here, would you... Yeah. You guys get the cash register receipts with the survey thing on it, right? If you'll go take the survey, uh, you get a free burrito or something, right? Well, if they really wanted the contact information, they'd pay the pit pitifully poorly paid person at the counter five bucks to get the survey. That's what they would do, right? So they're not really serious about it. So no instant follow-up. So I go to a higher restaurant. If it's two of us, I drop 200. If I got another couple with me, I drop 400. When I get home, nobody's done anything to thank me for being there. Next day, nobody's done anything to thank me for being there. Next week, when we might be going out again, nobody's done anything to thank me for being there. Now here's what some of you are just dying to say because it's what I hear, oh, we send them all an email. Ain't that big of you. First of all, that's what all the big dumb companies do. So you aren't standing apart in any way, shape, or form from the big dumb ones. Secondly, I hate to break it to you, but a huge percentage of everybody's email ain't getting opened. It's not even, it's not happening. Third, unless they're under 30, and I don't even believe it about them, but I can guarantee you the affluent customer of that restaurant who will be 45 plus, it's almost synonymous, affluent and aging. Um, Adam, the other morning for breakfast, almost shot him. He ordered avocado toast. Honest to Christ. <laughs> I'm going, Adam, please. You got to stop this shit. You don't... It, you, you, don't you, you see, my theory is you really can't tell causes, but if you know that a bunch of young, dumb, broke people eat avocado toast, it would be a good idea not to eat it on the off chance that that's what's causing them to be dumb and broke, right? I mean, just don't risk it, you know? So affluence almost, you know, it converges with of age. So our daughter and our son and their family insist on, even though I've explained it, sending Carla email birthday greetings. I'm in for two days of sulking. This disappointed, you know, did you hear from, like when she broke the ankle, did you hear from them? Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> How did you hear from them? They sent me an email. The disappointment in this is so great and so loud, although not yelled, and so significant. See, I wouldn't care if all it produced was disappointment on her part with them. This is not how women work. <laughs> Their disappointment expands like an atomic mushroom cloud. <laughs> It sucks everybody in. 
See, if I'm mad at you, I'm just mad at you. I'm not mad at my wife. If she's mad at you, she's mad at everybody within a five-mile radius who might have anything to do with you. Now, these are stepkids. I didn't even produce them. I got no... I should have no attached liability whatsoever. But I got it, because the disappointment cloud spreads and envelops everything. The dog knows words. So the dog knows, like, snack. Are you ready for your snack? Dog goes right to her bowl. She knows the word, right? She knows the word walk. She knows the word email. (laughs) When Carla says, I got an email birthday card, the dog runs. She says, oh, this isn't going to be good. I don't want to be a part of this. You know, I don't know what it is, but I know I don't want to be a part of it. Imagine you go to a upscale restaurant for the first time. And two days later, arriving at your house by Federal Express is the thank, is the welcome to the customer family box of stuff. The thank you note signed by the owner and the person who waited on you and the three bounce back coupons with expiration dates to come and with one you get free wine and another time you get free dessert and all you got to do is bring another couple with you, etc. All arriving. Imagine your reaction to this versus a thank you by email. If the customer comes in once a month, drops 200 bucks, even if you're at 30% margin, it's 60 times 12, $720 a year. What's it worth to you to buy $720 a year? You're not going to buy it with an email. I'm telling you. So follow up on the new customer immediately. Go sign up for D23, Disney's adult fan club. It's stupid cheap because they don't care about making money with it because it gets you, it gets them more frequency and more constancy. Go sign up. They don't do continuity. They do terms, so you're going to pay by the year, the two-year, the three-year. Every year, your renewal gift is a giant box of cool stuff, including stuff you can't get. You can't even go buy it. It's only in your cool stuff box. I had a conversation with one of them about how if you put this on continuity, you could easily triple the price. Nobody noticed. Nobody would care. He said, you might be right, but, you know, we got a 90% retention rate now, and it's okay. I get it. Second financial efficiency thing to think about is the number of times the same dollar goes out, gets money, and returns with it. So this is why ad budgets are nonsense. So I just had a client 
in a private meeting tell me he's going to go get his master's degree. And I felt the bile rising in mine. Because, you know, if you actually take a course in advertising and marketing, there, there's a whole big module of that on how to do budgets. And budgets, direct response people, understand their nonsense. Mm-hmm. We send a dollar out. If the dollar comes back with a buck thirty, we want to send the dollar out again, as fast as we can. And again, and again, and again, and again. Ah, but if we set a budget, what do we do? Stop in September because we've spent all we said we were going to spend? Despite the fact that every time you send it out, it comes back with 30%, 30 cents more. Oh, we've hit our ad budget for the year. We're not going to do that anymore. We'll just park that dollar over here, and it'll wait till next year when we create a new budget. This is, again, how big, dumb companies operate. Honest. This is what they do. So financial efficiency is how fast can we make the dollar work, get back in here, and we send it out again. That's why the principle of the irresistible offer is so important. Because if you make a really great offer, even if it costs you more to deliver on it than a mediocre offer, but it gets the dollar with the buck 30 back customer in tow within a week instead of within a month, and you can do that 50 times this year, it more than makes up for the higher cost of delivering on the irresistible offer. Really smart people have built restaurants with one month of free lunches for everybody in walking distance. Cheaper to give away all the food for a month than it is to invest in a year trying to get you to come in and buy a meal. If food's really good, if the restaurant's really good, you work in an office tower right close to the restaurant, you're a highly qualified prospect, you're a high-value prospect, let's just get you as quickly as we can so we can take our ad dollar and use it again and again and again. Second, ratio of customer value to customer cost. Now, this is important because most business owners refuse to track it. So it's really the biggest missed factor in data about marketing investment. If you have eight sources of customers, I can promise you they do not all produce a customer of the same value. They don't. But they also cost different amounts. So here's what the dumbest person does. I mean no offense but I do mean disrespect. <laughs> so I've had three of, those, three of these conversations today. You know who you are. And um, um, 
So the dumbest one says, hmm, eight ways we get a customer. What's the cheapest one? This one. We will now stop doing most or all of the rest of them, and we will reallocate all our money over here to the cheapest one. Now, he's the dumbest pencil in the box for a variety of reasons, but here's the biggest one. Any source of customers can be disrupted. So the worst number in business is one. I don't care where you find it. One anything. You should not sleep at night if you can identify a one in your business. So one or one predominant source of customers is a huge vulnerability. Now, it's worse if it's online than if it's offline because you got a bunch of people in Silicon Valley changing the rules every day of how you use their thing to get customers. So you could be disrupted tomorrow. They can turn off your site if they want to. Increasingly, they are going to turn it off for offensive speech. I don't know how to do advertising and not use offensive speech. I missed that class. The whole point of advertising is to offend the crappy customers so they don't come, so you resonate with the high-value customers. That's the whole point, right? So what is offensive speech? Is offensive speech saying idiots need not apply? Maybe. How about if I say millennials, stay away? Is that, at what point do they turn me off? So the vulnerability is an issue. The next dumbest person has eight. They all produce his customers. He takes the three cheapest and drops the five. The other reason this is dumb is it hamstrings your growth. Because by and large, most media is scalable only to a point. It can only produce so much. Most magazines, for most businesses, you can only run one ad a month. It won't work if you run two. It definitely won't work if you run three. It's, they only publish it once a month. It's scalable only to a point. Joe Sugarman famously deter, defied this years ago in the airline magazines because he went from one full-page ad to two to three to four to five. Pretty soon he had 16 full-page ads in Continental Airlines Magazine and United Airlines Magazine, and they threw him out entirely out of both of them because he was irritating and embarrassing their other advertisers, and the magazine looked too much like a Joe Sugarman catalog. I'm telling you, you could be disrupted at any moment for stupid. Stupid. I mean, the answer to the other advertisers is, why don't you buy eight pages? That's the correct answer, but... So the right answer is, there's two right answers. Bonus. I'm in a good mood. I'm going to give you both of them. So right answer number one is dollar cost averaging of sources of customers. Right? 
doesn't matter that we can get a customer over here for $4 and over here it's for $40. As long as we can afford the 40 we use them all, we dollar cost average them, okay, we're at $19.22, now we gotta make sure our economics support $19.22. Within that context, you have to calculate differential value of the customer. So if method number one gets you a customer for $10, and method number two gets you a customer for 30, your reaction will be, Ooh, I don't want to do the 30. But if you don't track those customers for some period of time that's appropriate for your business in order to calculate their differential value, what happens if the one that's costing you 30 is worth 300 and the one that's costing you 10 is worth 20? Now we don't want to do the 10. We want to put all our money over in the 300. So if you don't factor in differential customer value, and not what you think, what you know, you will make bad financial decisions about your marketing. The second right answer is don't obsess over the cost of customer acquisition. Fix the economics behind customer acquisition. So people often give this to me in a tight frame. So one of the people who talked to me today, and I think I got him past it, you know, but one of the people who took, do you, so like I think I got him past it pretty quick, like Tony got that woman over 20 years of not having an orgasm. Do you know this Tony Robbins story? So Tony's telling this story, um, and he's doing his seminar in Canada, like five nights in a row, and people come back, and the audience builds, like a revival tent thing. And um, so the psychologist challenges him, and Tony says, bring me your most troubled person that you've been trying to fix with therapy, and I'll fix the person on stage in front of everybody in like three minutes. So the next night, the doc's back with this woman, and her situation is she hasn't had an orgasm in 19 years. And Tony brings her up on stage, and he does some NLP stuff, and she has an orgasm. And so he's bragging about this, that this is, this is you know, epic, right? And my reaction was, I don't think it's that big a deal. She was due. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So... So I think I got this guy past it, I hope, in like three minutes. So here's the tight frame he put. I do, I get my customers from this online media, and they cost me X, and we monetize them to Y, and we can't monetize them more than Y. And I've tried radio now, and... It costs so much to get them by radio, I'm only at break even. So in reality, if I spend 60 grand on radio, I bring in 60 grand from these customers. I can't monetize them beyond the 60 grand. Therefore, I can't do radio. So this is like really bad thinking. See, the, you won't fix the radio. 
He's running a good ad. He knows what he's doing. The phones are being answered, et cetera. So whatever the hell it costs to get a customer from radio, it costs. Now, my June event, we're talking about a principle called change your math, change your life. And this is true. Right? When you change your math, you can change your life. But the answer in this case is not the tight box he stuck me in. And it's not, I got to figure out how to fix radio or I can't use radio. No, 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 no. The problem is the customer value. That's the issue. Go do what you just told me you can't do and figure out how to monetize the customer for more money. How about an A-B offer? How about we just charge the radio people more than we charge the online people just to penalize them for not converting at the, what do they know? How about we find somebody else who can use the same customer and we sell the customer to them, we sell the lead to them, and we monetize the data we're getting from the radio advertising, which will allow us to stay on radio because we want to be on as much as we can be. That's the right answer. Break even, worse than break even, don't walk away from that too easily because your problem is your break even. Your problem is not the media. Your problem is your break even. And often it isn't even that. Your problem is just a cash flow problem where they do work out to be worth 3000 over time and it costs you 1000 to get them and therefore to get 100 costs $100,000 and you don't have that kind of cash laying around. So I can't do that. Figure out the answer to that problem. Don't try and fix the source, the media. So I kept the infomercial on the air for eight and a half years. I just had the people with the number one infomercial at the moment in my house for a day of consulting for that very reason. Because their numbers are already starting to cost going up. Monetization currently set in stone. How are we going to stay on the air? What did you do? So, well, I didn't fix the media cost. It climbed every year. The first year we were on the air, it cost $8 and change to get a lead. The last year when we left, it cost $46 and change to get a lead. 500% increase. Answer very simple. Find five other companies who can use the same lead, who are paying $8 a piece for their leads. They'll give us $8 for our leads times five, that's 40 bucks. You monetize the unconverted lead. What am I really doing? I'm monetizing the data. Right? And even way down at the small business level, all those people that called the auto parts store and didn't buy an auto part, there's somebody else, used car dealer, whatever, 
who can use those leads. And you can't get cash for them. You can swap them. Same difference if the other lead. So you want to look at, you don't want to recoil from a cost of lead acquisition or customer acquisition. You want to change the math of your business to accommodate it. That's the thinking that makes people rich. Let's talk about price very quickly. Man, am I in time trouble. That's... Whoa, 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 whoa. Here's the biggest thing to know about price. When someone with elastic ability to buy mentally and emotionally buys a concept and a source, the price the customer will pay is automatically elastic. Right, so it's important to, they're not going to stop at the end of the sales process if this is true. So let's take Tupperware. You go to a Tupperware party. Your mom went to Tupperware parties. Tupperware is alive and well here and even more so in a number of countries person goes to a Tupperware party and gets sold 50 bucks worth of plastic pots. They almost all know, as they are buying them, they could buy them for 20 bucks at Target. Not with the Tupperware name on them, but other people figured out how to make plastic pots that when you turn them upside down, all the crap don't fall out. Okay, that used to be kind of unique to Tupperware, but other people figured it out. The product advantage has disappeared. And yet, the company thrives selling at very stretched prices. I just did a bunch of consulting for High Point University. High Point University is in their tier of colleges about the highest priced one there is. They are competing with other colleges, including bigger name colleges, that sell at a lower price or that give more scholarships, which in case you don't know it, there's fundamentally no such thing. The in-industry language for scholarships is discount rate. There really is no such thing as a scholarship from Yale. There's a discount from Yale, either because they want your kid or they don't have enough seats filled or they want to get them all done in a hurry so they can spend the money on something else, but it's a discount rate. So High Point and Tupperware have the same thing in common. If they can get somebody to buy a concept, first of all, so the Tupperware concept is, A, this stuff's really cool. Look, you can turn it upside down and the stuff doesn't fall out. All right? But the real concept is you are going to come willingly to an environment 
that is a friend or relative's living room and you are going to buy something, period. That's the concept. So if they can get people to buy that concept and then they have bought the source, they'll pay 50 bucks for 20 bucks worth of pots. If I can get the parent to come to High Point having bought a concept about High Point, which is the president of the college is not an academic. He's a highly successful entrepreneur. Um, he made his money from scratch. Um, and he is committed to your kid actually being able to do something when they leave here that does not involve moving back into your basement. This is our concept. Our second concept is you've tried to keep, teach this kid certain character values, and you do not want to drop them in to the communist indoctrination camp at Stanford and have them undo everything you've spent 18 years trying to do. We actually teach character and capitalism. and So if they buy that con concept, then they come and they buy the source. So just like Tupperware, High Point lost its early advantage. When Nito Cobain first got High Point, it was a dump, and it was cheap, and when he fixed it cosmetically more than anything else, for the first year or two, everybody went, come for tour, and they go, holy crap, this place has got castles and free ice cream and color-coordinated golf carts, and look at this. It's like I always said, if Walt came back from the grave and designed a college, this would be it. Okay? It's Disney with classrooms. Okay? However, 10 years later, a bunch of colleges have caught up a little. To the they all came and visited, and they all went home. And no, they didn't do 20 Taj Mahal buildings, but they did two that are really impressive. They all went and got golf carts, and they painted them the colors of their college, and they put the logo on them. Right? And they put in escalators where they had stairs. And they got a food court with 20 food choices instead of two. So that advantage kind of went away. However, still price elastic because of these things. So your financial advantage comes from concept buy-in first. Do any of you own a franchise? I can't see you. Yell. Okay. So here's the concept they bought. They bought the concept that not having to create something from scratch, having a corporate parent and a corporate brand was worth 7% of their gross for the rest of their life. Now, I want you to think about this. If the business does a million dollars a year, that's 70 grand a year. In 10 years, it's 700,000. In 20 years, it's 1.4 million. In 30 years, it's 2.1, I think. It's a, that's a lot of chicken nuggets. That's a lot of sub sandwiches. But hardly any argument over the percentage once you buy the concept. 
there's a guy in the White House right now. At least he was when I checked the news at noon. Um, um, who's there because he really understands, in part, concept buy-in. People who don't get him try and take him literally. People who do get him take him conceptually, metaphorically. Okay? Nobody, well, okay, the worst of the Trump voters, the guy actually with the cap and no pants and no teeth, and okay, they're there. He might have taken him literally. But most of us knew he was not going to buy, build a wall from sea to shining sea, 450 feet into the air like Jack and the Beanstalk, that nobody is ever going to be able to climb over, and alligators in a moat underneath it so nobody can swim underneath it, and it's going to start at Jerry Brown's house in California, and it's going to end over here in Massachusetts next to my stepson's house. And no. Right? No. We bought it conceptually. We are going to enforce our borders, and we are going to exercise control over who comes in and who doesn't, and we're going to actually enforce the laws we got, and we're going to strengthen legal immigration and do something about illegal immigration. So, see, that, that's like Jeb Bush's 22-page white paper. Everybody goes, okay. Trump's bumper sticker, build the wall. Everybody goes, okay, I got it. All right, I understand that. Okay? That's concept buy-in. You need it in order to raise price, raise profit, be financially efficient. Next financial leverage. My friend Joan Rivers always said it, she told Melissa, it's no harder, dear, to fall in love with a rich man, and they all leave their underwear on the floor. All right? It's not exponentially harder to get a better, more valuable customer than it is a less valuable customer. What determines a valuable customer? Ability to buy at your desired prices or fees. With money or credit, they have to have the ability to buy at the prices and fees you wish to charge them. My hearing aid client was bringing a lot of broke, fixed income senior citizens in the door and trying to sell them an $8,000 hearing aid. Problem. Eight grand's a lot of money to somebody who gets a $1,200 social security check every month. It's a lot of dough. It's 70% of their annual income. It's a lot of money. Guy's got a pension from Alcoa and he gets 40 grand a year. Different story. I'm only taking 20% of his income that year. If he's credit worthy, so much the better. So for cosmetic dentists, and cosmetic surgeons, the slam dunk is 48 to 60 woman 
recently divorced. There's a right month to do this. Who got the house. Because if you're going to sell her a $40,000 dental case or a $40,000 fix everything case, she needs the ability to buy. This requires having a mortgage guy in your pocket who will run the credit, which I think is illegal, so don't tell anybody I told you. And I'm not dispensing legal advice, but I am telling you ability to buy is an important cog in this equation. Willingness to buy at your desired fees or prices. How do they behave? How do they buy? Why do they buy? Everything else they buy. Or almost everything else they buy. Replication potential. If you have a choice, and make a note, you have a choice. If you have a choice, you not only want the leverage of customers who have the ability to buy and the leverage of customers who have the willingness to buy. You want the leverage of customers who will replicate. That's how you bring your customer acquisition costs down is by replication and or multiplication. That's why if you went to um, uh, Nadia Monarez's roundtable last night, one of the things about the Hispanic market is bigger families, tighter-knit families, geographically tighter-knit families than the rest of us. Most of them are still real Catholics, right? Birth control consists of a band coming in so you can use the rhythm method. (laughs) Old joke, my father's. Um, Is the... That was his answer to, after the big gap, why in the hell did you have my brother? I couldn't get a band at 3 o'clock in the morning. So they have the ability to replicate more than anybody else. We have a member in the funeral industry who will tell you, Jewish people, Asian people, better customers than anybody else. they got bigger families. They do more elaborate ceremonies, yada, 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 yada. He's got all kind of reasons. Therefore, you weight your marketing to get customers who have replication potential. Multiplication potential is, are they a center of influence? Right? So in your town, what's it worth having the mayor? So pick a center of influence guy with a big customer list of his own, somebody that's on TV all the time, that's on radio all the time, what's it worth having them as a customer? A lot, because they have center of influence potential. What does that mean? You should spend more and be more determined about getting them. So ability to buy, willingness to buy, all these things matter which gets us to the reality of America. 
The vital conclusion you will come to as a smart marketer is most of America is worthless to you. They don't have the ability to buy. They don't have the willingness to buy. Nobody respects them, so their replication potential is very low. Okay? Don't go get them. Here's the current numbers. People think it's bigger. The total number of households with net worth of 1 million to 5 million is 11.3 million. From 5 million to 10 million, it's 1.3. From 10 million to 50, it's 875,000. That's it. That's all there is in the whole damn place. Mm -hmm. And by the way, net worth, if you're selling expensive stuff, matters more than income. Okay. Then if you get demographically cute, okay, those with, um, with a yearly income of 125000 and up or a median total investable assets of $800,000 and up, 76% are married. Obvious reason if you think about it. If they're single, they blow all the money because there's no spouse to stop them. Mm -hmm. If they're divorced, 50% of it leaves every time. At the time, Schwarzenegger and Burt Reynolds were on the Johnny Carson show together, and Johnny said, why are you rich and why is Burt poor? And Burt said, five marriages. He's on number one. Do the math. Right? 43% are currently employed. Gee, they got jobs. Big surprise. Okay? So the business we're almost all in is finding a few gold needles from haystacks. That means you can't be vanilla. You can't be for everybody. You can't let yourself sound like you're for everybody. You can't follow big fads. You can't do these things because what you will get by doing these things are not really valuable to you. I mentioned in connection with this, most of you know, there is a mid-year event that is mine only. This year's is advertising, marketing, and selling to your highest value customer patient slash marketing to the affluent. There are, as of yesterday, 19 seats. I'm not kidding. We're like, we max every year, and we're maxed this year. And those of you who come, you know, there actually is only so much space in that hotel. The walls are not stretchable. So there's 19 seats. Uh, uh, Vicki, who's in the back somewhere, has literature, has registration forms. But at this point, you'll have to be quick. If this makes sense to you, the financial leverage of having higher value customers and clients, you might want to attend. Let me take you through two more pieces of leverage. One, I'll be quick because it's redundant, I guess. It's right out of the renegade millionaire system. And it is a thing called present bank and future bank. So... Business owners who don't fully leverage 
their customers think in terms, this is how you think, they think in terms of present bank. If you ask a restaurant owner, how was your weekend? He will almost always answer you with a present bank number. He will either talk dollars, oh, we had a great weekend, we did 22,600 bucks. Or number of tables turned, or number of meals served. Those are all present bank numbers in the restaurant business. For the most part, the present bank money disappears. Can any of you find the dollar you made on this date and day a year ago and show it to me? You don't know where it is. It went away. Maybe it's in your business. Maybe it's in your house. Maybe it's in the pool you bought. But it's like gone. That's what happens to present bank money. That's why future bank is so important. If you don't stack up money in the future bank, So Gene Simmons, who was um, our super conference speaker, what, 2008, maybe, 2009, I'm not sure. So from KISS. You may notice Gene is on his vault tour. He's selling for $10,000 what he is calling the largest boxed set ever which isn't, because it's only got, I think, 14 CDs in it, but it's in a big box. And it's got a bunch of other stuff, and he's signing it at Vault Tour events. The one this week at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland was sold out in three hours at 10 grand a clip. Because Gene has a list So at the same time he was making present bank numbers, he was creating future bank with data by collecting names, contact information, fans over generations, with the ability to communicate with them. So the way to think about this is how can I have present bank money and future bank money occur simultaneously from the same act. You are in one of them right now. We got present bank money. You paid to be here. We're getting future bank money all the way along tangible, form, intangible, goodwill, so forth, but present bank, future bank. So what should the restaurant owner's answer really be if he's a future bank thinker? He would say to you, we had a great weekend. We did 22-6, and we collected 140 contact cards with birthdays on them we didn't have before. Boom. 
Now he's giving you a future bank answer, right? Because people go out to restaurants to eat on their birthdays. We can send them a birthday offer. They usually don't go alone, so they're going to bring a fresh customer in the door with them, and we can know in advance exactly how much money is going to come in every month based on the number of birthday files we have to market to. And it'll happen year after year after year if he doesn't ruin their birthday for them with crappy food or crappy service. So at the same time the present bank was made, the future bank was made. You get it? So if asked how their week was, most business owners answer by their harvest, not by the seeds planted. Rich business owners have an answer to both sides of this equation. In essence, how was my week? Here's the harvest. Here's the seeds planted. And guess what? Usually, the seeds planted are more important than the present bank harvest. I have one more leverage thing to show you. Uh, but first, uh, I want to quickly uh, give you an opportunity. So I've identified three of our regular products. So many of you will already own them, resources. Uh, team in the back, now would be the time to pass out forms. Uh, if you need a cue. Cue. <laughs> so I've identified the three products that have the most to do with leverage, and I have a special offer for you. So the leverage products, the first one you'll see on the form for leverage in message is a resource of ours called Opportunity Concepts Marketing, which is horribly misunderstood because you think you're not in the opportunity business, and I say to you, you should be. There's really only three categories of business to be in, and the other two suck. And most people stay in the other two because they don't understand how to be an opportunity marketer in a non-opportunity business. That's what this is all about. It comes from a two-day training. You can read the order form yourself. I will tell you that included in it is the agreements ladder. It literally is a structure for the agreements. You have to march a prospect through one after the other, atop the other, atop the other, to ultimately get to an automatic sale. So that's leverage through message. The next one is about leverage through method, and it is the craftsmanship of one-to-many selling a boot camp now in a box for you at home. So this is about not selling one-on-one -on -one and instead being able to sell to three, thirty, three hundred, three thousand face-to-face, an in-office seminar, an in-store seminar, a webcast, speaking from the stage. The architecture of the presentations is all the same. Okay? It's all the same. TV infomercial, webcast, dental implant seminar for five old people in the office. You got there by waving jello at the door. It's all, it's all, by the way, they like the lime stuff with the fruit in it, in case you. It's all the same. So this is about efficiency, this is about leverage by 
method of selling. Your third option, which should be on the back of your form, um, is leveraged by ultra-organized effort, and that resource came from my personal operating system day, and literally I showed exactly what I do, how I do it, every form I use, sample correspondence, everything is in that product. And they're all at 30% off if you do them here today. Um, you can do single pay or two pay if you want. And the first 60 people, if you go back to the top of the form, um, may add a 30-minute one-on-one call to the resource if you wish with me. So we'll get on a phone and we'll do a coaching call related to whatever resource you have invested in. I'm doing 60 of them. That's all I'm going to do. So on your form, again, if you go back to the back, you'll see next to every resource number, one, two, three, or all, which is, of course, the best value, you can add a consultation call, one call, whether you buy one resource, two resources. You don't get three calls with three resources. You get one. Uh, But you can add it. It's... um, it gets, it gets 297 added to the price, and that's all. And I'm billing phone time right now at $3,400 an hour. So you're getting a pretty good bargain gift for having been here, kind of in celebration of the transition. But you got to do it now. you got to do it here. And if you want the consultation call, you got to be one of the first 60. So let me finish with the last piece of leverage to think about. That is, so most small business people, even most mid-sized company owners, are imbalanced in competencies. So they get really, really good at one thing, maybe two things in their business, and they're kind of crappy at everything else. They continue, though, to work on the two things they're really good at because those are the things they're most comfortable with and they like the best. You don't, you're beyond this trap, but the trap most business owners are in is they get ever better, ever better, ever better at the technical, mechanical, or clinical delivery of what they do. And they don't get better at the marketing, at the other aspects of the business. And this is very common. So if you go to, still the same today, hadn't been in a long time, Lee Miltier and I went and checked it out last year, hasn't changed. So if you go to the National Speakers Association and you hang around, you will find 90% of all the emphasis is on being a better speaker. Breathing exercises, theatrical voice, joke telling, not having your hand in your pocket, um, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at a certain point, see, getting better does not do anything. But they keep working on getting better and better and better and better and better at that because that's what they're most comfortable with. 
freelance copywriters will spend 90% of their energy getting better at copywriting. They won't work on, like, getting better at getting clients on the same level. So there's six entrepreneurial competencies. And you need them all. So one is the ability to provide appealing products, services, and offers. Almost everybody figures that out. If they're a dentist, they figure out how to do dentistry that turns out okay, and most patients don't die. Then they figure out how to make that a little more appealing process, so they got a chair now with headphones, and, 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 they, and they give you some Bill Cosby drugs, and they, you know, and they all wear nice uniforms. And, okay, so, so they figure all that out. Right? But two is the ability to affordably acquire customers. Key entrepreneurial competency. Doesn't matter how good you are at number one if you're no good at number two. Three, the ability to manage for maximum profit. Now, mostly that's what we've been talking about in this second session, is how do you squeeze all the juice there is to squeeze out of everything that moves around in your business? Fourth, the ability to retain customers. So like, gee, do you have an early warning system that goes off when the customer who should have been in every three weeks hasn't been seen for six? If you don't have an early warning system in place, you're failing in this box. If your retention rate is really horrible, you're failing in this box. And in most businesses, if you don't have a lot of lifers, you're failing in this box. Next, the ability to develop value, equity, wealth, future bank, if you will. How good are you at future bank, not just present bank? So you go home, analyze everything that happens in your business that creates a present bank dollar, and see if you could figure out how to attach a future bank dollar to it. Last, the ability to meet personal lifestyle goals. So we talked about that this morning. Don't build a damn business that doesn't meet your personal and lifestyle goals. There's no excuse for it. It's not necessary. And everybody thinks they have to. And those of us who like to figure this out, we gradually figure out, no, 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 no. We can start with box six and engineer everything else to facilitate box six. So I made an exception this week. I make them. You just have to be careful the exceptions aren't the rule. I traveled and came here on a Tuesday. Does not meet my personal lifestyle goals because we race on Tuesday nights. And I, don't, and I usually have drives on Tuesday nights. And I don't like to miss drives. So usually my entire business is organized around that if I have to go somewhere, I'll go anywhere until Wednesday. And I gotta be back by Monday because we race on Monday nights. And if you're there on one of those days, like on a consulting day, we gotta be done by four, 
because I got to be, if I'm in an early race, I got to be there to blow the breathalyzer and be in the paddock. They actually won't let you race until you blow the breathalyzer. I can't imagine why um, in the old days. But anyway, so my entire, here's what your consulting day looks like. Here's what you got to do. No, you got to stay at this hotel. You can't stay at that hotel. It's all built around that. So I get to do the personal stuff I want to do. People, why is your office in Phoenix? Simple. Okay? Vicky's great, but I wouldn't want her underfoot. Okay? I actually want her as far away without being in California, because that's too much to ask of anybody, but as far, far from me. And by the way, she wouldn't want me underfoot either. Okay? Our business relationship works the same as a marriage. It exists because both people didn't want a divorce on the same day. Right? That doesn't mean, it just means on the same day. The odds of that not happening are much greater because we only see each other at events. And we only talk to each other three, four times a week on the phone. Right? So my whole business is organized around that. If you're going to get shit to me, it's got to be there on a Wednesday because the box comes to me on Thursday. If your stuff gets there on Thursday, it's going to wait until the following Thursday. Clients have to be told all this. You would think, but you're wrong. They will. Hmm? But all six boxes have to get your attention and your interest and your energy. And that's where you get your maximum leverage. It's not from one, not from two, from all six. Hopefully you'll take advantage of the leverage resources if you don't already have them. You and I will be talking one-on-one -on -one soon. We have one more session here. Hope you had a good one. And whoever's in charge needs to get up here because we are done. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.